Okay, the Foghorn. It is time for the Cavish Ships podcast, where we try cut through the fog, the murk, shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cavus. And I'm Chris Cervello. Coming up, if there's any one thing each one of us shares, it's the need for sleep. The need for truly restful sleep and the lack of getting enough of it has become a core issue for the U.S. Navy in recent years, especially following the 2017 destroyer collisions where fatigue was cited as a key factor in how fatal mistakes were made. A new sleep policy was issued late last year by the Navy directing changes in watch schedules to give sailors more rest, but challenges remain in implementing real changes while at sea aboard a 24-7 warship. We'll talk with the U.S. Navy's top sleep expert about what's needed, what the Navy is trying to do, and whether or not it's working. But first, a quick roundup of naval news around the world. The ballistic missile submarine USS Wyoming launched two unarmed Trident II missiles September 17th off Cape Canaveral, Florida, in a successful test of the life-extended D-5LE missiles and of the sub's launch systems. Wyoming completed a three-year refueling overhaul a year ago, and the launches were part of the qualification process ahead of its first post-overhaul strategic patrol. On September 19th, a U.S. Navy T-45C Goshawk training jet crashed in Lake Worth, Texas. The two pilots aboard the plane, an instructor and a student, each ejected but were injured. The student is in serious condition. The aircraft was assigned to Training Air Wing 2 out of Naval Air Station, Kingsville, Texas. The fast transport ship Choctaw County arrived at Beirut, Lebanon, September 20th to begin the first ever Central Partnership mission under U.S. Naval Forces Central Command. The missions involve unit level and one-to-one exchanges about a variety of missions, including mine countermeasures, explosive ordnance disposal, disaster response, public health, and construction practices. Similar missions have taken place in Latin America, Africa, and Asia, but this is a first for the Bahrain-based U.S. NAVSAT. In the U.K., a steel-cutting ceremony for the British Royal Navy's first Type 31 frigate was held September 23rd at Babcock's new facility in Rosyth, Scotland. HMS Venturer is the first of five Type 31s that will replace the Royal Navy's general-purpose Type 23 frigates. Venturer is to be launched in 2023. In Washington, the Senate Armed Services Committee this week publicly released its version of the fiscal 2022 defense authorization bill. The measure approved by the committee in July has yet to reach the Senate for floor debate. The House on September 23rd approved its version of the $768 billion policy bill by a vote of 316 to 113. The bill includes three Arleigh Burke class destroyers, two more than the Pentagon requested, and two Virginia-class attack submarines. Notably, the bipartisan bill added about $25 billion to the Biden administration's request. Neither the House or Senate, however, have yet to approve their FY22 defense spending bills. And with the end of the fiscal year coming next week, a continuing resolution is expected to allow the government to continue to function. An interesting provision of the House Defense Authorization Bill would invite Taiwan to participate in the 2022 Rim of the Pacific or RIMPAC exercise. If adopted by the full Congress and signed into law, it would mark the first time Taiwan has been invited to take part in the world's largest naval exercise held every two years in waters around Hawaii. 
The People's Republic of China took part in several RIM packs in recent years, but was specifically excluded in 2018. Five Chinese Navy ships took part in the 2016 RIM pack. Taiwanese participation in the exercises has been proposed on several occasions, but never approved by the U.S. And that's a quick look at Naval News this week. All right, moving to the discussion portion of the podcast, we are joined this week by retired Navy Captain John Cordell. Uh, John is currently the human factors engineer at Naval Surface Forces Atlantic. Uh, John enjoyed a 30-year naval career that included commissioning two aircraft carriers, USS Harry S. Truman and USS George Herbert Walker Bush, as well as uh, he commanded two warships, the USS Oscar Austin and USS San Jacinto. His last job in the Navy was as chief of staff at Naval Surface Forces Atlantic. He is the author of three books, uh, including his most recent book, Going Circadian, The U.S. Navy's Slow Road to Change, uh, which came out in 2020 as well as the author of numerous articles and opinion pieces. Uh, John Cordell, welcome to Have a Ship podcast. Hey, thank you very much. Happy to be here. John, I want to start with a discussion about going circadian um, and why this has been such an important process for the Naval Surface Force. Um, I started off in the aviation community and my time on uh, USS Harry S. Truman, um, it was always very odd, right? Half the ship was very much focused on crew rest, focused on um, that part of the mission and everybody else sort of worked themselves to the bone. Um, and we're, we were kind of fine with um, you know, the two sides of the coin. Why is understanding um, the importance of sleep and making that part of a command's philosophy uh, critical to the Navy's mission? Hey, Chris, that's a great question um, because I think a big piece of this um, really goes back to understanding why sleep is so important, right? I mean, we all know we need food, water, and air, um, but really the fourth pillar is sleep to be healthy. And, uh, you know, you notice a lot more information out there now on the importance of sleep to fitness, to mental health, to physical health. And so I think part of it was just we didn't have the science behind it. Um, I know in 2010, when I got underway on, on San Jacinto with an experiment, that was really the first I'd even heard of the idea of a circadian watch bill. Um, and circadian, meaning the 24-hour cycle that your body sort of adheres to. Um, and sort of unknowingly, I had been busting that cycle for years, standing five and dime watches and, and shift work and things like that. And so um, I think the science is a big piece of it. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I think another difference is in the aviation community, um, that pilot is a single point of failure, right? If that person's fatigued, they die. Uh, to make a mistake. Uh, in the surface Navy, there's a lot of layers. There's, you know, the deck watches, there's multiple backups, and, and perhaps there's a little more uh, sort of potential for absorption. If one member is tired, the rest can cover. Um, but uh, as we discovered in, in the collisions in 2017, um, one, those effects build up over time. Uh, and two, if everybody's fatigued, then uh, uh, then that was sort of a uh, certainly a major contributing factor to those collisions. And that was sort of the, uh, the turning point for the Navy, although many ships had adopted those, those things uh, a while ago. Um, but I think you hit on a, a big piece. I bounced between surface ships and carriers, and there, there's definitely a different culture there. Um, the aviators uh, uh, would, would, would not get in the plane if they hadn't met their crew rest. Um, and they would build that into their entire planning process. And in the surface force, we often just accepted uh, fatigue, you know, even, even embraced it, you know, it, it's kind of like, it's funny when you talk to an electrician, it becomes like a fishing story of, you know, I've been shocked by this many volts. Oh yeah, I got, I got 240 and, uh, 
Uh, and, and the same thing with sleep. Well, I've been awake for 48 hours. Well, if you've been awake for 48 hours, then you're essentially drunk um, and you should no way be standing a watch. But that's kind of the thing that we let ourselves get into. So I think it was starting to change, but I think those collisions really sort of uh, rung the bell for the Navy and shifted the, uh, the course. Before I throw it to Chris, you are here in your uh, your personal capacity. You're, you're not here as necessarily a representative of the Navy, but right. pulling on that culture thread, can the Navy overcome that um, that culture aspect that you just referred to with regards to the surface community? And, and how is the surface community doing in implementing um, th this type of watch bill and, and making this the norm um, that we do see in uh, other communities like the aviation community? Okay, uh, great question. So um, I, had, I had a couple of good quotes uh, that I, I think they're tossed around in the book somewhere, but also I use all the time. One of my good friends, uh, John Kirsch, when I was sort of griping about the, uh, the, the sort of reluctance to embrace some of these concepts was, uh, hey, the time to plant a tree is 10 years ago, right? Um, no Chinese proverb, it just takes time. And 10 years, it turns out, another mentor of mine said that's about one generation in the Navy. Right. In 10 years, the, the division officers are department heads, department heads are commanding officers, the, the, the second classes are chiefs. And so, uh, you know, culture change takes about a generation. Um, and so uh, I think when the, you know, for instance, a division officer today uh, knows nothing but circadian watches, right? Um, the ships out there have implemented them. Um, as far as how we're doing, the GAO had a really intriguing report that just came out in May. Um, with some good news and some bad news. The good news was almost all the ships have adopted circadian watch rotations. Um, the bad news is um, they're still not getting a lot more sleep than they used to. Um, and they sort of attribute that to two things, uh, really op-tempo and workload um, compared to the manpower that's on the ships. Um, and I think the importance of the circadian though is uh, if you and I stand the same watch rotation, uh, or the number of hours per day, but I stand a circadian watch and you stand a, like a five and dimes, you probably saw folks doing that, one that's non-circadian, um, you will gradually become much more fatigued than I will and be much more likely to make mistakes. So the circadian piece is pretty important. Um, and, uh, and that's step one, right? Um, and so if I use my generational analogy, um, that was implemented in 2017. So we're still five years away from, I think, a complete uh, you know, the, the day when an officer of the deck will say, I can't take the watch because I'm too tired, right? Um, maybe not, maybe not. I think on some ships that's happening. Um, and I think it just takes a while for that to become the acceptable culture. Um, I, I can say that that's what the, uh, the surface leadership uh, wants, um, is, is to, to plan ahead and, and to be ready uh, and then say no if you can't do it. And uh, I think we're, we're, we're getting close to that in a lot of ways. So for uh, Chris Cavus here, so for people who don't know, you're talking about five and dimes. This is like a 15-hour shift. Um, explain to people what that means. Okay, thanks. Sorry. And, and um, how does so, that work through the week? Right. So that's right. So, so basic, uh, uh, the way to think about this is um, a ship is operating 24-7. And so there's a small group of people that are, that are all, where there's always someone on that watch, the officer of the deck, the engineering officer of the watch. Uh, some of the radar plotters, quartermasters, things like that. So if I'm going to operate 24-7, I have to have someone in that chair every minute of every day. Well, if you think about it, to really do that, um, you need multiple people, right? So the three of us would basically stand on one watch um, and we would rotate. Um, so what that works out to is eight hours of watch per day if there's three of us. So there's a couple ways you can skin that cat. If you want more time between watches, we could stand longer watches, five hours a piece, 
and have 10 hours off. The problem with that is you've got the 10 hours to sleep, but it comes at a different time every single day. So one night you might have the march from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. The next night you come on at 2 a.m. and stay until 7 a.m. And so your whole sleep cycle is out of whack. Um, and that, that builds up this level of fatigue over time. A circadian watch uh, for three section would be like four on, eight off. So for instance, Chris, number one, you would have the eight to 12 every day. I would come on at noon till 1600. And then Chris would come on from 16 to 2000. Um, and then, you know, we just continue to rotate like that. Um, the challenge there is you only have eight hours off, um, which means by the time you get off watch, go eat, maybe work out, you're probably down to six hours of sleep. And what the GAO found was a good portion of our, of our sailors are still under six hours a night. Um, which is, uh, which is just unhealthy. If, if that makes sense. Do you have, have, have you looked just at, uh, other navies, foreign navies? Uh, we have, I actually did an exchange tour in the German Navy. Um, and, uh, most of them, uh, they, the watch bills are kind of all, they have, they have less, typically less watch standards than we do. Um, and, uh, they tend to gravitate towards a three section. I think, uh, some version of kind of a four on eight off. I don't know specifically, um, I know I've worked a little bit with the Canadian Navy and some other folks that have started to adopt circadian, um, but I think I get the sense that when I talk to foreign naval officers that they're, uh, they're also focused on this, although I don't think they have a formal policy, not that I know of. That's a great question, though. I could probably ask and find out. So how do you square all this with, I mean, you know, it, it all sounds nice and neat. You know, you, you stand to watch, you're off, you, you automatically go to sleep. I don't know about you. I, I worked, uh, I spent five years uh, and as a television director, and I would get up at three oh three hundred, um, which sure. is not to be confused with three o'clock in the morning, <laughs> and um, my day would go all day. And then I had a small child; I had to keep to take care of when I got home. Right. Um, I learned to take naps. Um, I never got, I never ever got four hours of sleep at any one time for years. And I, wow. I, I have to admit, I. At some point, you felt your life slipping away, but it's what you did to, to to mesh with things. But the Navy has all these requirements, particularly on officers, and and listed as well for education sure. requirements. And I need you to write this report. You have to fill out these forms. And now I have several hours every day to do all this. I'm buried with administrative work. Well, that kills so so much. I mean, if if I'm doing this, I'm I'm saying, well, I'm not. I'm just not going to sleep. I'll do all this. I'll get my two hours in if right. I'm lucky. And of course, you know, even when you do that, you have to learn to not, don't count the hours, just take whatever you get. But, no. um, but it's, it's not a healthy lifestyle, but, uh, but even, even if you implement your circadian rhythms, you're not, how, how are you addressing the other impacts on people's daily life that, 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 that are relentless? Okay. Just, just don't you're, let up. Yeah, you're right. And, and, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm sometimes guilty of maybe oversimplifying um, how hard it is to really implement this and to make it work, especially um, with all the outside influences. You know, a ship at sea, um, even just normal operations, you have a daily routine with, like you said, maintenance and training and uh, uh, in meetings and briefings. And, you know, the admiral wants to talk on a video teleconference. And, um, and so everybody has their own sort of, they call it a battle rhythm right, is the 24-hour cycle. Uh, and then you have the unplanned events. Uh, 
a, uh, a target, a, a ship you have to go investigate or you have to launch a boat or launch an aircraft at short notice or do an emergency recovery, right? And so those all impacted. The way we approach that is, um, I think we're starting to realize that uh, no matter how much work we take away from the ships, there's always going to be more work, right? And you felt the same way. I feel the same way at home sometimes. Um, that's why the dishwasher is still full of dirty dishes, right? Because I haven't uh, gotten to it yet. But uh, um, a couple things that we use, if you look at the, the Naval Postgraduate School, Dr. Anita Shattuck uh, was a, a huge mentor of this, and Dr. Kim Cully at Sub4, um, and Dr. Rachel Markwald have been great innovators in sort of the Navy sleep domain. A couple things is, first of all, the circadian watch, if you can get in that routine, you still set, you know, you have to stand X numbers of hours of wash every day. Um, you just rearrange the times a little bit so that it's more, so that it's circadian. Once you're in that routine, now other things start to fall in place. Like, when are we going to do training? When are we going to do drills? When are we going to do meetings? When I was growing up, the, uh, we call it the ops intel brief. It was the nightly brief about operations. It was always at seven, at 1900, 7 p.m. till about 9 p.m. or 8.30. Well, half the people in the room are nodding off because they just got off watch or they're about to go on watch and they're supposed to be sleeping. Um, most ships now do that at, in the afternoon, like at three o'clock. Um, most of the ships, uh, so the crew endurance handbook that's put out by the postgraduate school um, has really three pieces. One is the watch bill. The second is a supporting schedule. Um, so you shift the day around so that the lights stay out until like nine o'clock. If I have watch till 3 a.m., I sleep in, right? Um, and then if we have training meetings, et cetera, then they happen between like 9 a.m. and about 1500. If they're going to do a big drill, I do it at lunchtime. Um, even announcements, you know, ships always have whistles and bells and, you know, the bosun's whistle uh, pipe and things like that. Um, and they try to schedule those inside of those hours and then not have meetings, training um, during the evenings. Now, you can't control, you know, flight ops, boat ops, things like that, um, operational tasking. Um, but again, you know, you go into that battle with the sleep you have. So like you said, back to the, the question about naps and things is, is the culture is, okay, if I have a couple hours, it's okay to go grab a nap, right? Uh, Chris will probably attest. We all did it, right? But it wasn't really, uh, you sort of snuck it in. Now, even our instruction says a nap, if you go, if you, you, the goal is to get 7.5 hours of protected sleep time uh, so that you can get seven hours of sleep. Um, our data shows we're not successful, right? Um, uh, but some ships are, you know, uh, I was doing a, uh, uh, I had a, one of my uh, podcasts with the Surface Navy Association, an old CO called in and he says, I, I slept. I knew that the battle, it was, it was a, in Operation Iraqi Freedom and he was launching tomahawks at night. He said, I knew I was going to be up all night. So I went to bed at two o'clock and slept till six o'clock every day. Drove the XO crazy because the captain was always asleep. Um, so uh, yeah, the bottom line is I think um, there's really three pieces to it. I mentioned the watch bill, which is circadian. That's, that's science, right? That's, that's the, the foundation. Uh, a schedule that supports letting you sleep and giving you protected sleep. And the last piece is culture, uh, as Chris alluded to. And that culture is um, my priority out here at sea is watch standing and safe operation of, of, of a warship. And so I'm going to prioritize the rest of my watch standers, the, the, the rest that they get, just like a pilot for the airplane, so that when they do go on watch, they're ready to stand the watch. If something else has to fall away because of that, I have to delay that meeting or cancel that report um, or rearrange something else, then, then we do that. And that's that cultural piece. Um, and that we also have that in the forefront of our minds that if we did something, we, we can recover as well. And so, you know, are we there yet? I would say no. Um, but certainly, as I talk in the book, um, things are changing. You know, the junior officers of today 
when they become commanding officers, this will be all they grew up with. And that's when I think we'll, we will have really turned the corner. Um, but we have to, you know, have to follow the science um, and you have to break down some paradigms uh, that are pretty tough in a, you know, the Navy is a big ship with a small rudder. And so it takes a while for things to, to take effect. This has been a great talk. You talk about how you're turning the corner with this, you're implementing new circadian awareness. Um, certainly, if nothing else, you've, you've, you've accomplished that. Um, whether people buy into it or not is another question. But what kind of pushback do you, do, you, do you still see? It's one thing to, you know, get weed out the old people, right? Let the, let, let the traditional people uh, get older and rotate out and the younger people rotate in and then move up. Um, that's one thing. But what kind of pushback do you still, what are, what are your obstacles right now that you that you deal with on a daily basis? Um, I think, you know, certainly one of the obstacles that, per the GAO report was uh, just manpower, just raw numbers. You have X number of hours of work to do and you have a certain number of people. Uh, if you're short people, then, uh, then the work doesn't get done. Um, so, you know, that's a piece of it. Um, the other one is uh, just the scheduling piece because uh, the scheduling of, of, a, of, of these meetings and training and things like that is always a challenge. There's always more to do than you have time. And so you really have to make some priorities. And so sometimes uh, I think where we're, where we're not quite there yet is, okay, what are we not going to do? And who are we going to tell, hey, I'm not going to do this report. We're going to have this training when we get back to port um, and things like that. So just the number of administrative requirements, that's a big challenge. Um, and, uh, and just the pure math of manpower, how many people you have. Because um, you have planned maintenance that's very codified number of hours per day. Um, certain people can only do certain maintenance. And so it adds up. Um, so those are our two biggest obstacles. Um, and, uh, and each ship's going to have to address them differently. Um, but we just try to give them the tools to make those decisions right. and then pass up the chain, what they, uh, what they can and can't accomplish. Science collides with real life. Um, <laughs> like it always does. Yeah. We've been, we've been talking to Captain John uh, Cordell, retired um, U.S. Navy. Uh, his book is Going Circadian, the United States Navy's Slow Road to Change. And, sir, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Very interesting. Hey, thank you very much. It was great. Now hear this. Now hear this. Now hear this. Now hear this. Well, that sound means it's time for Squawk Box. This week, Chris Cavus has France on his mind. French warships were in U.S. ports this week. The nuclear-powered submarine Amethyst was at Norfolk. The frigate Aquitaine welcomed visitors in Baltimore. The head of the French Navy, the chief of staff, was in Washington and met with the U.S. Navy's top leadership. They were here to mark the 240th anniversary of the Battle of the Capes, where a French fleet in 1781 defeated a British fleet in Chesapeake Bay, prevented the resupply of the British Army at Yorktown. Thus trapped, the British Army surrendered to George Washington, effectively bringing to a close the American Revolution and guaranteeing the United States independence from Britain. The newly announced AUKUS submarine deal with Australia has meant the cancellation of France's biggest ever foreign military sales deal. The French were mightily mad about the way the deal was rolled out, and there have been numerous statements in the media as to the shortcomings, not only of the French submarines for Australia, but especially in social media, as to perceived shortcomings of France as a capable military and reliable ally. Nothing could be further from the truth. Professional naval people for many years have expressed to me their admiration, not just of the French military, but also of the French Navy. 
comments like the most professional Navy out there. They really know their stuff. They're very capable. They're very effective are common. I've had the opportunity to visit a number of French warships and shipyards, including a nuclear submarine, and they are nothing if not impressive. Their forward-leaning naval posture in the Western Pacific, especially over the past year, has been an effective element in a larger multinational effort to demonstrate military and political resolve in the face of relentless Chinese pressure and expansion. That the French are exhibiting a high level of peak at the abrupt cancellation of the Australian submarine deal is understandable and very French. Both the Americans and the French routinely mention that France is America's oldest ally. But there's some serious fence mending to be done with our ego bruised ally, and those efforts are already underway. But they need to continue. We need them. All right. Well, that does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vago Maradian for his support, as well as to the Fink and Terry Marine Group and Huntington Ingalls Industry for their continued support of the defense and aerospace effort. Be sure to follow us at Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello. And I'm Chris Cavis. Thanks for listening, and bye-bye. Bye-bye.